Let's take our Bibles this morning as we continue in worship and turn to the 23rd chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 23, as we continue or resume our journey through Genesis. I know there have been a lot of people who are maybe visiting with us today. You've probably joined our congregation since we were in Genesis. If it seems like it's been a long time, that's because it has. As a matter of fact, it's been 25 years not in our perspective, but in scripture from chapter 22 to 23, we have a 25 year gap. So that's where we're going to be picking up this morning. 25 years uh, in our uh, kind of a gap here between the, t- the story and the book of Genesis. But first, let me just say, as you're turning there, it's great to be back with you. We were in uh, Africa, England, and then Africa for the month of December with our children and grandchildren. We uh, Received the birth of a new grandson, little Judah, who was born today, one month ago, one month ago today, December 17th. And uh, we were talking to our daughter yesterday. Please remember, he's got five mosquito bites there in Malawi. And we know malaria and all that stuff going on over there. And uh, it's just, it's a different culture over there. So please pray for the Kazai family, our missionaries, as, uh, as they go through their, their service there. But this morning, we want to turn our attention to God's Word in Genesis chapter 23. Before we start chapter 23, it was back in November that I preached the message from Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham offers up Isaac on the altar there, and God intervenes and saves, um, saves little Isaac. But God was testing Abraham. But at the end of chapter 22, there's something significant here. In chapter 22, verse 20, it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, this is chapter 22, verse 20, has borne children to your brother Nahor. Now, this is interesting because we'll come to this, come back to this a little bit later on. But Abraham is keeping in touch with his family in his former country, in Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham came from. He has communication with his brother. He finds out that he's got some new nephews. Now, I've always loved Genesis chapter 22, verse 21, because it says there that Uz, look at verse 20, Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother. Now, is it, man, that's my all name team right there. I tell you what, I've always wanted to have twin boys, one named Uz and one named Buzz. Hey, some of you guys can still make that happen, okay? Uz the firstborn and his brother Buzz. What great biblical names. But it's important because Abraham hears what's going on back in his home country, okay? And that is significant. Now, chapter 23 that we're going to look at this morning, uh, to be honest, in our original planning, as Kobe and I were looking at, at preaching through Genesis, we kind of thought, you know, there's not a lot of significant things in this chapter, And this chapter is kind of like the third verse of most Baptist hymns. We just skip over it and go to the fourth verse. Uh, But we're not going to do that because I believe today, and Kobe and I both agree, there are significant things that we need to learn. You know, and that's one of the beauties of preaching expository messages. Now, again, as we go through Genesis, don't expect us to preach every verse because we're going to get into the story of Joseph here in a couple of weeks. And that's, that's amazing. It's, it's a long story. But as we preach from the Bible, as we preach and exposit the text, we believe that this is the best way to equip believers in the church. The past two weeks, Pastor Colby has shared with us our vision for Alberta Baptist Church. And that is to equip the saints for the work of the service. 
And expository preaching is the best way to disciple a congregation. It may not be the most entertaining way. It may not hear the most jokes or hear the most stories. But you will hear from God's word truths that will transform our lives, okay? So that's the purpose. And we want to equip believers for the work of the, the service. And we preach to make disciples. I want you to know that. We've become very intentional in everything we do at Alberta Baptist Church. Uh, not just this year, but every year. We want to preach to make disciples. See, as we encourage you and equip you to, to use your gift in this body, Again, our goal is not to find volunteers, but to create leaders in all areas of ministry. See, there's a big difference between finding volunteers to serve a slot and fit in here than there's a difference between raising up leaders who have a vision for what God can do in their life and through their life through the body of Christ. And that's what we want to do. And, you know, one of the greatest things that we have to come to grips with as a believer, as a disciple, is how do I handle tragedy? How do I handle the difficulties of life? How do I handle death and loss and loneliness? And that's what we're going to see uh, in our passage this morning. So let's look at chapter 23. <laughs> Pastor Colby read Romans 8, 28 through 39. I'm going to read for you the chapter, the entire chapter. So please follow along. We get a lot of scripture reading in today. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in, went in her tent to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead. And spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, if it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zoar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all who went in and out of the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field which was in Machpelah, was named, was, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it. And all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession 
in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in and at, who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we pray this morning that our hearts will be open to the truth of your word. Speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A long, lengthy passage there, but it's all significant. If you'll notice in chapter 23, the first two verses deal with Sarah's death, the actual passing of Sarah. And then the next 18 verses deal with the arrangements to be made after the passing of Sarah. Isn't that often the case that death may come sudden? Death may come quietly, and then there's a lot to do afterwards, isn't there? We're kind of left, and many times, a lot of people think to pick up the pieces after our loved one is gone. But Abraham loses his wife. Notice also, chapter 23, verse 1. You will notice in verse 1 tells us that Sarah was 127 years old when she died. Let me point out that this is the only place in Scripture where a woman's age is given at her death. Can I say that again? This is the only place in Scripture that a woman's age is given at her death. My theory is that Sarah gave the Lord so much grief about this, he didn't do it again. (laughs) Never is a woman's age mentioned at death again. Anyway, that's just my theory. Uh, Anyway... So this morning, we want to look at Abraham's sorrow and Abraham's hope. But we want to talk about the realities of death this morning. But for us to understand the realities of death, let me remind you of the realities of life that we see in this passage today. First of all, like Abraham, we are strangers in this world. Verse 4, Abraham says, I am a stranger and sojourner among you. I am a stranger and sojourner among you. The Lord had led Abraham out of his home country into a foreign land. Not just any land, but a land God says that I will give to you. But up until this point, Abraham had lived in a tent. Abraham had lived a nomadic life. He didn't own anything. And so Abraham reminds the people of the Hittites there that I'm a stranger. I'm just a sojourner in this world. And this is a truth that we need to be reminded of. This world is not our home. When it comes to facing death, when it comes to facing the tragedies of life, we have to remember what the scripture teaches us. First Peter chapter two, Peter says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. That's who we are passing through this world. We are aliens and strangers. And how does that affect us? He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your, against your soul, against your members. See, there's a battle going on. We're in a foreign country. We're in a foreign world. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. For us to handle the death and tragedies of life, we got to remember that our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, from which we eagerly wait the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this world, we're aliens and strangers. We're sojourners. 
And that fact reminds us that things are going to happen in this world that are foreign to us, that are foreign to us. So we need to remember, like Abraham, we're strangers in this life. Like Sarah, secondly, we're confronted with the curse. The curse. I was reading this morning about the curse of the Heisman. People are talking about Cam Newton and the playoffs this afternoon. Heisman Trophy, some have done well. Winners, Heisman Trophy winners have done well in the NFL. Others have not. The curse of the Heisman. I remember the curse of the Bambino. You know what the curse of the Bambino is? For you baseball fans, you remember, in 1918, the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. Traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. And they never won a pennant, never won a World Series. And they were suffering from the curse of the Bambino. That curse was broken in 2004. And I'll tell you how in just a few minutes. I know you're interested in that kind of stuff. But the curse that Sarah faced... The curse that Sarah was confronted with is the same one that we're confronted with. It's the curse of death. Sarah was 127 years old and she died. She died. Benjamin Franklin famously concluded, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now the Bible tells us that death is a part of the curse. Death is the result of sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12 where he explains, therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world. You remember we saw that in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve. Eve did the deed. Adam got blamed. Sin entered in through one man in, the, in Genesis chapter 3. And death spread through, and death entered through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because we've all sinned. Because of sin, we're confronted with the curse. Because of sin, Hebrews tells us it's appointed to all men once to die. And after that, the judgment. See, we need to see death for what it really is. Death is our enemy. Death is our enemy. Death is a part of the curse. I've said many times at funerals, death is one of the great mysteries of life. And that's why Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, he doesn't want us to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. But death is more than a mystery. Death is our enemy. It's a reminder, a constant reminder of the curse. It's a constant reminder that we live in a fallen world. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. We're strangers. We're sojourners in this world. Our citizenship, true citizenship, is in heaven. Death is not, as some people say, and I've heard this many times, death is a natural part of life. It's not. It's normal, but it's not natural. But see, death was not a part of God's original plan for us. Life is what God offers us. Life is what God wants for us. But now death, a part of the curse, has entered into this world to remind us of our rebellion, to remind us of our sin. This curse is a result of our sin. And even as believers, we're not immune, are we? 
Death affects us all. Now, we have a different perspective, and we'll talk about this more in just a minute. But the Bible says that Christ abolished death, and that means that he broke its power over believers. His resurrection triumphed over death. But that victory, that ultimate triumph, will not be fully realized until he returns to give us resurrection bodies like his own. Until then, until that day when Christ returns, death is our enemy. Death is a painful reminder of God's judgment on our rebellion against him. So death, we're not just supposed to smile and say it doesn't hurt because it does. Death brings some hard realities, which we see in this passage. We're reminded of the realities of death. Number one, death brings a sense of loss, a sense of loss. We can see this in this passage. Notice there, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Two distinct emotions here. Two interesting words. And I'm not going to go into great detail here, but to weep is what we would do. It's not uncommon for us to cry. It's not uncommon for us to weep. It's a healthy thing for us to weep. And to shed tears at the loss of a loved one. But not only did Abraham weep, but he mourned. Now this is a word that is much more demonstrative. When we think of the Middle Eastern culture, even today, but particularly in that day, it was not uncommon to weep and wail loudly. And we see this today many times on television and in the streets of Middle Eastern cities. And we see that weeping and wailing. That's what Abraham did. He weeped and he mourned. Why? Because he lost his wife. See, death brings a great sense of loss. There was an emptiness in Abraham's life. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But he lost his wife. He lost his lifelong companion. What do we know about Sarah? I was thinking about trying to write out an official eulogy. You know, we always do that at funerals. The first thing I would say about Sarah is that she was beautiful. (laughs) She was a good-looking woman. Abraham probably, like me, married way above his head. He didn't deserve a beautiful wife like he got. But he had a beautiful wife. She was a woman of faith. She left Ur of Chaldean. She left all the comfort and security of home to go with her husband. Listen, ladies, listen to this. What if your husband came home and said, we're going to move. Where are we going? Well, we're going to go to a place God's going to show us. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, you can take what I know about women and put on a postage stamp and have room left over. But I know that women like security. They have this nesting tendency. They want to know where, what's going on. And Abraham tells Sarah, we're going to move. Where are we moving to? I don't know. We're just going to follow God. So Sarah was a woman of great faith. But also she was a woman who could get jealous. She got jealous over her son. You remember the old story? Hagar, Ishmael, little Isaac running around there. Ishmael's mocking him. She sent him away. She was jealous for her son. So we see that she was a real woman and now she's gone. Abraham goes in to weep and mourn. Let me tell you, church, if you want to comfort people who have lost loved ones, do what the Bible says. Do what scripture tells us to do. You know what that is? 
weep with those who weep. That's a good thing to do. We weep with those who weep. I remember a friend of mine who lost her father said, you know, I don't remember anything anybody said, but I remember everybody who was there. Your presence means so much. And if you want to comfort those who are weeping, just weep with them. Weep with those who weep. Isaac, Abraham lost his wife. Isaac lost his mother. Turn over to chapter 24, 67. It's the last verse there. It's interesting, isn't it? In chapter 23, we have a funeral. In chapter 24, we have a wedding. Isn't that like life? The highs and lows of life. Chapter 24 is a wedding. But chapter 24, verse 67, Isaac gets a wife. Then Isaac brought her, which is Rebekah, into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted over Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isaac missed his mother. Isaac had lost his mother. Now, now I think Isaac would be the poster child for a spoiled kid, wouldn't you think? His dad in Genesis chapter 22, God had to put him to the test. Do you love your son more than you love me? Obviously, Abraham loved him. And obviously, as any mother... With the only child, Isaac was the apple of Sarah's eye. I was reading different material and I found this. This was an old English play, in a medieval English play. And in the play, it's the scene where Abraham is fixing to offer up a sacrifice. And all of a sudden, Isaac realizes, hey, I'm the sacrifice. Now, this is in the play. And here's the line from the play with using a little holy imagination The playwriter says, as Isaac is saying, now I would to God my mother were here on this hill. She would kneel before you on both her knees to save my life. (laughs) A little holy imagination there, but isn't that a mother's heart? Isaac knew that his mother would not let this happen to him. She had protected him all of his life. And now she was gone. Such is a mother's love. Isaac lost his mother. Abraham grieves the loss of his wife. Death brings a sense of loss. Death brings a sense of loss. Secondly, death brings a sense of loneliness. Abraham and Sarah had been together for probably close to 100 years. When you think about it. Sarah was with him when he left the land of Ur, the Chaldeans. She was willing to leave, as I said, the comfort and security of her home. To live in a tent. They had gone through that whole experience. They had gone through the pain and shame of being childless. As a matter of fact, when we're introduced to Sarah in Genesis 11, verse 30, the first thing we know about Sarah was that she was barren. She had no child. Making matters worse, she was married to a man named Abram. His name means exalted father. And we have no kids. They'd been through so much together. And now she was dead. Notice Abraham's comments in verse 4. I'm a stranger and sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead. Here's the key. Out of my sight. Again in verse 8. If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. I think that's very significant as we think about the pain of death, the loneliness 
Now that person who's been with us all of our life is out of sight, out of sight. There's a separation there that Abraham and Sarah had never experienced before. Abraham still has his son, Isaac. As a matter of fact, Abraham later on will take another wife and he'll have more children. But nothing could ever fill the hole left in his life by Sarah, his beloved wife. Church, we need to understand death is our enemy. Death brings a sense of loss and a sense of loneliness that is very real. That's Abraham's sorrow. Let's look at his hope. Number three, we're reminded of the nature of true faith. And I'm not going to take the time to read this whole account again, but I read it for you in verses three through 20. This is the account of Abraham's hope. Again, we mentioned earlier that Abraham had received word from the earth of the Chaldeans that his brother had some more children. He's got these great nephews, Uz and Buzz. And And I say that's significant because Abraham's natural instinct would have been to take his beloved wife back to Ur. Because that's what people did in that, those days. You take your dead and you bury them in their homeland. But now Abraham remembers God's promise. Look at that. He remembers God's promise. Go forth, Genesis 12, God says, go forth from your country. And from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So when Sarah, his beloved wife, dies, instead of taking her back to the home country, which was the natural thing to do, the common thing to do, he says, you know, that's not my home country anymore. This is my home. Now, how much land did Abraham own in in this country right now? Nothing. But by faith, he remembered God's promise that God was going to give him a land. God was going to give him, make him a great nation. That's why he must bury Sarah here among these Hittites. He believes that one day this land would belong to him and to his descendants. One day, by faith, Abraham believed this land was going to be a part of a great nation. So he says, I'm not going to take her home. I'm not going to take her back to the homeland. We find out later in this very cave that Abraham is buried there. Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, Jacob, all buried there as a testimony of their faith that God's promise to give the land of Canaan to their descendants. See, this strange land was now their homeland because God had promised it to them. So Abraham remembered the promises of God. Secondly, Abraham acted on the promises of God. See, church, this is where faith takes hold. It's not enough just to say we believe certain things. But our actions always demonstrate our faith. Abraham remembered the promises and then he acted on those promises. And again, it's not necessary to go through all the haggling that took place between Ephraim and Abraham. But I do think it's funny. Can I just tell you the funny part? See, Abraham goes up to this at the gate and all these elders of the leaders of the city are sitting around there. And he says, can you guys give me a place to bury my wife out of my sight? And they said, anything you want, Abraham, we'll give it to you. 
And so this Abraham said, well, there's this one cave in this field with these trees that I want. And, and Ephraim all of a sudden breaks out in the sweat. That's my land. And so Ephraim doesn't want to look bad in the, in the sight of his buddies. So he said, Abraham, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. And Abraham's, no, 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 you can't give it to me. And then Ephraim says, well, what is, what is 400 shekels of silver between two friends? <laughs> I just think that's funny because he said he wasn't shy about letting Abraham know how much he thought it was worth. I'm going to give it to you. Yeah, but it's, you know, what's 400 shekels among friends? You know, I'm going to give you my watch, but what's $38 and 17 cents among friends? I want you to know exactly what I paid for it. I just thought that was funny. But what we see there is Abraham acting on the promises of God. See, this transaction was a monumental event. Abraham now owned a portion of the land which had been promised to him. And all of us know today that this transaction, this land, would become a source of controversy for centuries to come. And it all started here in Genesis chapter 23. So what do we see? Abraham grieved properly, but by faith he acted on the promises of God. His life was dictated by hope and not by sorrow. So what do we learn? Let's look, let's go back. Pastor Colby read Romans 8. I want to invite you to, I meant to tell you to stay there a while ago. But let's go as we close this morning to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> because see, from this account, we have the beauty of the New Testament, which interprets the Old Testament for us. See, Bible scholars tell us that the Old Testament is just a shadow of the things to come in Christ. And we can read the Old Testament now and we see tremendous lessons and life principles that we see fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so we remember the promises of God. And the promises of God to us have not been that God's going to give us a, a homeland, not God's going to give us, but God's going to give us an eternal inheritance. God's going to take care. We, he becomes our Father in Christ. We become his children. And the promise of all promises rests in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. When death comes into our life. When tragedy comes into our life. And church, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. None of us are immune. But when those things happen, how do we respond? How do we respond? We remember. We're challenged to remember God's promise. God causes all things to work together for, to, for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. You know, isn't it something we hear that? That's probably the most quoted verse of all time. It's almost like, take this verse and call me back in the morning. You know, here, just take this and remember this. We kind of use it in a flippant way. But oh, the power of that verse. What does it mean? It means that we believe that everything, listen to me, everything that happens to us in this world should be viewed from the standpoint that we have a sovereign God who controls people and events. All things. God causes all things to work together for good. How do we face death? How do we face tragedy? 
We trust God. We trust his promise. But let me tell you, there are two conditions here. Notice one, those who love God. We know that, all, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Who love God. See, we give this verse as a prescription to people who don't even know God. Who don't care anything about God. And there may be some people here today who say, I've claimed that verse all my life. And you don't love God. So who are you to judge me? Let me just tell you what the Bible says. That by nature, we don't love God. By nature, we are enemies of God. By nature, we are children of wrath. All of us have rebelled against God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it's not that we love God, but God loved us. He first loved us. And that's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So this morning for us to sit here and say all things work together for good. Yes, that's great. If you love God, if you have a relationship with God, you can have that assurance in your life. He loved us. We see his love for us on the cross. We respond to his love when we trust him and we obey him. Again, that love and obedience, trust and obedience, trust and obey. Somebody ought to write a song about that because they go together. We can't really do one without the other. We can't really say we love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So let me ask you this morning, as we think about how do we handle the tragedies of life? Do you know God? Do you love God? Has God changed your heart? Do you have a relationship with him through Christ? To love God is to obey him. And here's the key, without trusting God's love for us and his power to bring good out of any situation, we're helpless and helpless and prone to bitterness. If we don't really believe that God loves us, If we don't really believe that God has good for us, we're going to be prone to bitterness when tragedy comes. But we can trust him because he loves us. And he causes all things to work together to good for those who love God, but also to those who are called according to his purpose. There's the second qualifier. What does that mean? It means that we know that God has a purpose in whatever happens to us, good and bad. Good and bad. God, nothing happens randomly. We believe that God is a sovereign God and we are called to respond in submission to his plan. We submit to God's plan. To those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? Number five, we're comforted as we trust God's plan or his purpose. In verse 29, we see that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would become the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What is God's plan? Is that we are to be conformed to his image. How does God do that? Through good things and through bad. Through life and through death through triumph and through tragedy, through sorrow and through hope and joy. God is conforming us into the image of his son. Now this may sound like an oversimplification, but it's so true. God's purpose for you is not to make you happy, but to make you holy. 
So I believe if I trust Christ, everything's going to be great. I'm a cheerleader for Jesus. Hey, it doesn't work like that. Jesus said, in this world, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But when we take the mindset that God is conforming me into the image of his son to make me holy rather than to make me happy, then my whole expectations change, don't they? My response changes. Lord, I don't like this. There is a sense of loss. There's a sense of loneliness. But I know you're making me more like Jesus. And so I'm going to say it's worth it. I'm going to say it's worth it. I'm going to be reminded that you love me. I love you. And you have a plan for my life. We're being conformed to his image. And here's where we see the ultimate triumph from tragedy. Remember the curse of the Bambino? Well, I was a, I was a part of a pastor study, pastor study group. And in 2004, we took a trip to Boston. And the four of us studied with a professor at Harvard University. Yes, I have studied at Harvard for a week. And while we were there, we went to a Boston Red Sox-Minnesota Twins game in July of 2004. That October, they won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. So how was the curse broken? I went, okay, all right. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. But the curse that Sarah confronted, the curse that we're all confronted is the curse of death brought on by sin. And this is where we see the ultimate triumph from tragedy. When Jesus went to the cross... It appeared to be the ultimate tragedy. This prophet, this good man, this healer, this guy walked on water. He fed the hungry. He caused the dead to... They killed him. What a tragedy. But we all know what happened three days later. Amen? Christ resurrected from the dead. Christ conquered the grave once for all for us. He came. And now, death is still a part of the curse. But it's changed, hasn't it? As a matter of fact, the Bible says we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we close, let me ask you, do you believe all things work together for good, even death? Yeah, we do. Let me ask you another question. Do you love God? Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Are you called according to his purpose Are you being conformed, as the scripture says, transformed from glory to glory to the image of his son? Not always easy, but ultimately we know that God is at work in us and through our situations to make good come out of the bad. And we trust him. We trust his love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lesson.